Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Sharon Avni, Sarah Bunin Benor, and Jonathan Krasner to talk about their recent book, Hebrew Infusion Language and Community at American Jewish Summer Camps, and the big issues that their research raises about the role of Hebrew in American Jewish culture and history. Sharon Avni is Professor of American Literacy and Linguistics at CUNY, the City University of New York. Her research has examined how ideologies of language, heritage, diaspora, and peoplehood are constructed and negotiated through educational practices and policies in formal and experiential educational sites for Jewish American urban youth. Sarah Bunin Benor is Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. In addition to Hebrew Infusion, which we're talking about today, she's also the author of Becoming From, How Newcomers Learn the Language and Culture of Orthodox Judaism, which was awarded the Sammy Rohr Choice Award for Jewish Literature. And we're also joined by Jonathan Krasner, who is the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Associate Professor on Jewish Educational Research at Brandeis University. He's also the author of The Benderly Boys and American Jewish Education, which was awarded the National Jewish Book Award in American Jewish Studies. Hebrew Infusion is such an exciting book because it combines sociological, historical, and linguistic approaches to thinking about what our guests call camp Hebraized English. But while it might seem to be focused on a very specific cultural and linguistic development at a very specific time and place, at camps in the summertime, I think that it really speaks to broad issues about the changes that have taken place in American Jewish culture and what it means for there to be an infusion of Hebrew and other aspects of Jewish culture in a camp and other spheres of Jewish life. Thanks so much for listening in for this fascinating conversation about how language functions and Jewish culture and why it matters. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you guys about this book. Uh, hi, Jason. I'm Sarah Bunin Benor. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, this is Sharon Avni. It's really nice to be a part of this. And I'm Jonathan Krasner. Thank you guys so much. It's such an interesting book, such a fascinating topic. It's a very specific topic, uh, but it's one where I think there's a lot of really interesting directions in which we can take it, you know, talking about Jewish camping, talking about Jewish languages, talking about American Jewish life, American Jewish culture, kind of broadly speaking. I think that, that it might be really useful for us to actually start out where the book starts. The Hebrew spoken at Jewish camps in the U.S., uh, what you call camp Hebraized English, is not the same as vernacular Hebrew. Uh, which is spoken in modern-day Israel. So do you guys maybe want to comment about what this idea means to you? you know, what even is this language, and why is it important in terms of understanding the dynamics of Jewish culture, Jewish education, and so on? When we went into camps and we started to hear and see the Hebrew that was being used, we recognized immediately that it wasn't the Hebrew spoken in Israel. And that it was really a, a variety of a language that was drawing from lots of different sources. This variety 
however it looked at each camp, is really drawing from all sorts of histories and experiences. And one of the things that we tried to do in the book was to trace these histories of how Hebrew found its way into American Jewish camping, how it changed over time, both in relation to the American Jewish community, what was happening in the United States, and obviously with the establishment of the State of Israel, how the American Jewish community reacted and responded with its own relationship with Hebrew, and then bringing it into the the modern times of what's happening today. And so when you look at it across this trajectory, we could see that this variety, that this language really has a very specific meaning within the camp uh, context and has rich cultural meaning for American Jews. I see Camp Hebrew in three ways. I see it first and foremost as an insider language. This is a language that is understandable only to people that are in the group. It's something that they share in common. It's a community building exercise, if you will, the creation and the dissemination of this language. Second, it's a Jewish language inspired by, and it is definitely located within a Jewish context. And third, it's a Zionist language. The decision to have it be a Hebraized English as opposed to a Yiddishized English or a Ladino English, um, that was a specific decision. It was a very conscious decision that was made early on. If you go back and you look at the early history of these camps and how this language was created, the people who were invested in the creation of this language were Zionists, and they were looking to the project in Palestine and inspired by it when they started speaking Hebrew at camp. Now, the listeners might be wondering what we're talking about when we're talking about Camp Hebraized English, so I guess I should give an example. In some camps, you might have just Jewish life words, like they might say, after Birkat, we're going to go straight to Oneg. And those are words that you would hear outside of camp in many Jewish communal settings. But many camps that are more to the right of the, on the continuum of Hebrew richness would have sentences that have a lot more Hebrew words in them. So they might say something like, Chanichim and Madrichim go to the Teatron for Pe'ulat Erev. Now that has so many Hebrew words that it really wouldn't be comprehensible to somebody who didn't go to a Jewish summer camp that has a lot of Hebrew words. But note that it's still an English sentence in that the grammar and the function words are English, right? They wouldn't use a full Hebrew sentence at most camps. And then even farther to the right on that continuum of Hebrew richness, you have camps that do all of their announcements in Hebrew. And in some cases, this is a Hebrew that is mostly set phrases. So they might just say something like, Gesher le Migrash Kadursal ve um, Solilim le Beit Knesset, right? So that they would be saying the name of a group and the place where they're supposed to go. And people listening to that would just have to listen for the name of their group and the place they're supposed to go. But then some camps have much more complex sentences in Hebrew in their announcements and in other camp public language. Yeah. Part of what's interesting here from a linguistic perspective is going back to this way in which what you call camp Hebraized English, you have the use of Hebrew terms, but in ways that are grammatically incorrect from a modern Hebrew perspective. Like you use the term birkat, you know, which is, of course, a shorthand for birkat amazon, right? For uh, grace after meals or blessing after meals. 
And the term birkat does not actually mean anything in Hebrew on its own because it has to be in conjunction with the second word. The same thing with the term chadar ochel, right? It's cheder for a room, you know, and it's a different conjugation, as it were. And But the, people use it on its own. And this is, I think, something that people who speak in modern Hebrew, they look at this and they realize that it's being used in a different way than spoken Hebrew. I don't think camps are necessarily worried. Like, is this correct? Is this not correct? But rather that this is a language that serves our purpose and it does really important work locally at our camp. So whether it's Birkat Amazon or Birkat, some camps are concerned and that there is controversy. However, I think that you can look at this and and say it's not a matter of correct or incorrect, but really a matter of what this needs to do or what this potentially can do for a local community. And I think that what it does is actually quite strong. So at some camps, there's actually a lot of correction of Hebrew. And there's a lot of discussion about whether it's okay to say not just birkat, but also chadar instead of chadar ochel, meaning dining hall. And then also marp is another one that people talk about a lot because in Israeli Hebrew, it's mirpa'ah, meaning infirmary. But a lot of camps use marp, which is short for marpe'ah, which is an older form that is common on kibbutzim for infirmary. And so many camps at many camps, there is a discourse about correctness there. Is it okay to say MARP? And for most people at most camps, the answer is yes. But some people really do insist on correctness and will correct people for their incorrect usage. And, and that correction is not just about fostering a uh, sense of what is correct in Hebrew, but it's also a matter of highlighting the importance of Hebrew at camp. You have a lot of emissaries from Israel called shlichim that come to many camps in the summertime, and they are flabbergasted very often by the so-called Hebrew that they hear being spoken because it doesn't necessarily bear any resemblance to the Hebrew that they're coming with. And they, in fact, have to actually learn the Hebrew register or the English register that is being used in the camp. That is a very ironic situation where so-called experts are being schooled in how to speak this language in an Americanized camp environment. In its origins, a lot of the camp Hebraized English was influenced by American Hebraists at the turn of the 20th century, and a lot of their Hebraisms are still very much a part of this camp Hebraized English, so that, for example, MARP, that derives from this earlier Hebrew that was spoken 70, 80, 100 years ago, that is remained in the camp context, even as the language has evolved in the Israeli context. And who's to say what's right and what's wrong? I mean, who's to say that, you know, French and English, which also at one point split off, that one of those languages is a purer language than the other language. I think that this is leading us towards a specific set of historical and linguistic issues and cultural issues, kind of broadly speaking, which is ultimately the question of correctness, so to speak, is part of the broader struggle over language that one can look at in all languages to some extent. But especially when you talk about modern contemporary Hebrew, it's not like Ben Yehuda woke up one day and the modern Hebrew language came into existence. There's an entire kind of cultural struggle over how it should be spoken, what's the the types of, of accents, you know, or dialects 
you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that part of what you're pointing out here, which is really an important thing for us to understand, is that languages have histories that change over time. And we kind of, in a certain way, have a linguistic time capsule, you know, taking place at some of these camps. Um, on the one hand, and it also just highlights that there is no one right type of Jewish culture. There are, is a, such a vast diversity. Uh, and just looking at camps, which are coming from all different denominations, different streams of Judaism, that's one way of thinking about this, but also just the Hebrew represents the diversity which is taking place, uh, instead of there just being one right way to do things. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in some ways, the camp Hebrew derives from an attempt on the part of these American Hebraists to sort of be uber Hebraists. They actually eschewed any kind of outside English influence on the Hebrews. So they insisted on calling baseball Kadur Basis, even though there was no Kadur Basis. They made that word up because they needed a word for baseball. Nobody played baseball in, you know, in Israel. They created these words because they wanted to use Hebrew rather than to use a kind of a, an English slang because they wanted to make sure that the Hebrew remained pure and they saw the use of English as a corruption of the Hebrew that they were trying to use. The sociolinguist uh, Monica Heller uh, has a, a great take on this and, and says that often the, the cultural struggles of a community, their anxieties and their concerns about broader issues are often fought over on the terrain of language. Exactly. A lot of people think about Hebrew at camp as they want the campers to learn Hebrew. But for the most part, that's really not true. We surveyed 103 camp directors, and the vast majority of them were not interested in their campers learning Hebrew proficiency. They wanted them to feel a connection to Hebrew, to Israel, to Judaism, to Jews around the world. And most importantly, they wanted them to have a strong Jewish identity. And we argue that the use of Hebrew words at camp is one of the means to fostering that strong sense of Jewish identity. You know, and for some of the camps, that's going to mean that Jewish life words are going to be the primary way in which they express that. And for other camps, it's going to be more Israeli type Hebrew words like, you know, calling the pool the Brecha or calling the lake the Agam. So you'll have variety within camps. To some extent, that variety may reflect the ideology of the camp or what's important to the camp, or it may reflect who the campers are and their level of Hebrew knowledge, uh, or whether they went to day school or religious school or what have you. But one interesting corollary to that is that the camps that have the most day school students, uh, Orthodox camps, tend to have the least camp Hebraized English, with the exceptions of the B'nai Akiva camps and some similar camps. But most of the Orthodox camps use the same kind of Orthodox Jewish English that the campers would experience in their day-to-day -day lives. They don't use things like Chanichim and Madrichim and the Misrad and the Trifim, but their English is heavily influenced by Hebrew and by Yiddish because that's how their communities speak year-round. What is the takeaway here in terms of thinking about American Jewish culture, about modern Jewish life, kind of broadly speaking? What is it about Camp Hebrew, about the use of specific words at camp or the construction of a specific kind of language or a hybrid language that helps us to lead to like a, a wide set of questions 
um, not just about this time and place during the year, but about Jewish culture on a larger scale. Jewish English as a broader phenomenon is similar to Jewish languages throughout history. Wherever Jews have lived, they have spoken a distinctly Jewish version of the local language. Now, in some cases, that might just mean adding a few Hebrew words to the language that their non-Jewish neighbors speak. But in other cases, it leads to a very different language that might not even be intelligible to their non-Jewish neighbors. And so you get this with Judeo-Arabic and Judeo-Provencal and Judeo-Persian, Judeo-Malayalam, Judeo-Isfahani, right? All of these languages that Jews have spoken throughout history are similar to the language of the non-Jewish neighbors. Now, two exceptions to that are the two most famous Jewish languages, Yiddish and Ladino, and they're different because they were maintained away from the place where they originated. But Jewish English is similar to these other languages in that Jews in America and other English-speaking countries speak English, but with distinctive features. And the way that it's spoken at camp is even more distinct because of the setting of the camp being separate from everyday life and allowing uh, specific cultural norms to take shape. But the way that English is Hebraized within the broader society is not specific to American Judaism. In fact, it is a continuation of millennia of diaspora Jewish cultural creativity. I would look at the camp arena from a historical perspective as one of many places where Jews in America are negotiating what it means to be Jewish in a pluralistic society and to what extent they want to be part of that society and to what extent they want to be segregated from that society. Here we have the appropriation of a very American kind of activity that is sending your kids to summer camp. And one will find in an American Jewish summer camp, many of the same practices, many of the same activities that one would find in a regular summer camp, the sports, the arts, a lot of the choreography, a lot of the iconography is very similar to what you would find in a typical summer camp. And yet there are these particularly Jewish aspects to it that also separate it, that also make it apart from the typical Boy Scout summer camp or whatever your model is. Certainly, the celebration of Shabbat is one aspect of that. And of course, this Camp Hebraized English that we're talking about is another opportunity for Jews to say, you know what, we're going to be as American as everybody else, but we're also going to wear our Jewishness and we're going to be unselfconscious about that Jewishness in terms of the way that we operate, the way that we express ourselves. The study taps into discourses having to do with peoplehood and that big notion of what it means to have multiple centers of Jewish life uh, around the world. Is there just one center in, in the state of Israel or can there be a Jewish life that has multiple centers? And if we really commit to that notion of Jewish peoplehood in all its diversity and that each of these centers can be places of vitality, 
and creativity and growth in and of themselves, then in some ways we can see Kim Pegras' English as a manifestation of peoplehood because it is a, a language by which a community of Jews in each specific camp, but even more broadly speaking, is using Hebrew, its different forms in different ways, uh, but in a very innovative and creative way for uh, the community. It might be useful for us to think in historical terms about how this has developed over time. You know, Sarah, you mentioned Camp Hebraized English is one of a whole series of Hebrew-inflected languages that we see throughout the course of Jewish history. This is you know, a continuation of Jewish history as a whole. Jonathan, you are talking here about the relationship of Hebrew at camp and with this tension over the place of Jews in American Jewish life. Fundamentally, Jews want to have camps like other people, but they're creating specific Jewish camps and doing things to Judaize this space, whether it has to do with religious practice, cultural practices, uh, language, or whatever. You know, and Sharon, you're thinking here also about this question of different centers of Jewish life. This is an issue that I personally think is, is so important. You know, this question of what is the center of Jewish life? How does culture move through space? The fact that you have Israelis coming to Jewish camps in the U.S. and what that means. You know, how do we get to this point? You know, how do we get to what you're talking about and describing in terms of the contemporary use of Hebrew in Jewish camps uh, in the U.S. You know, how does it emerge? How is it transformed uh, over the course of the 20th century? You know, what does this mean as we try to think about the history of camps in the U.S., Jewish camping, and the history of American Jewish life? How did it emerge and what does it mean? So I think it starts with a problem and an opportunity. The problem is that a lot of kids are going away for the summer. This is way back in the first decades of the 20th century. Um, many of them are going to what we would think of as Jewish-sponsored camp, because at that time, camps were very segregated by religion, and most Jews didn't go to Christian camps. So they were going to these Jewish-sponsored camps, but there was no Jewish texture to these camps or there was very little Jewish texture to these camps. So the problem from the educator's perspective is how do we take this experience that is becoming popular and how do we make an educational experience out of it? How do we take advantage of something that parents are doing anyway with their kids in the summertime and try and capitalize on that? And a small group of educators decided that they would experiment with Jewish camps, camps with Jewish content, cultural content, educational content. Some of those camps were Yiddishist camps. Some of those camps were Hebraist camps or Zionist camps. The Camp Hebraized English that we're talking about, I think, really derives from that Hebraized branch of camps that developed in the 20s and the 30s. Many of these Zionist and Yiddishist groups uh, saw in camping as an opportunity for them to uh, disseminate their ideology. And so you have, for example, Habonim, which is a Zionist youth movement that creates uh, camps in the 30s and the 40s as a way of disseminating their ideology and as a way of taking the experiences the kids were having in the wintertime and extending them into the summertime. You had 
Young Judea, uh, another youth movement that was creating camps. So you have all of these different youth movements creating camps. And then in the 40s and the 50s, you have the religious movements getting involved in the same process. You have federations and JCCs also capitalizing on this idea of using camp as an opportunity to educate and uh, to perpetuate Jewishness in America. And certainly after World War II and the Holocaust, there was an added impetus on the part of American Jews to ensure the continuation of the Jewish people and an emphasis on the youth as the future and camp as an opportunity to experiment with an idealized Judaism, not necessarily the staid Judaism that kids were being brought up with in the cities, but a kind of a vital, joyful Judaism full of energy and excitement. Some of that excitement was imported from Zionism um, because that was certainly a bastion of activity and energy at that time. Um, And some of it was created within the camps themselves. These camps were developing as an expression of the imperative of survival um, and looking to the youth as the future. And then more recently in the 90s and the 2000s, with fears about Jewish continuity, you have money being pumped into Jewish education. Um, You have the creation of mega foundations, funders that are concerned about the Jewish future. And of course, we could talk about the, you know, the good part of that and the darker part of that. But certainly from the point of view of the camps, there was suddenly a lot of money and a lot of opportunities within the camping world um, that didn't exist before. And that's part of the reason why you're seeing an explosion of camping in the past 20 years. You know, I recall from reading the book, thinking about the ways in which different camps had different approaches to Hebrew, you know, but also how this tracks alongside changing approaches to Israel and Zionism. And how is it that Hebrew enters into the Jewish camping world and what that represents in terms of thinking about the American Jewish interaction with American culture and with American Jewish camping? So when Zionist youth groups began to experiment with camping, they naturally began using the Hebrew that, uh, or the Hebraized English that they themselves were using in their youth groups. And so there was a language that was common in these youth groups, and that language was imported into these camps. In addition, they tried to use more Hebrew, especially nouns, in order to describe certain things. And they looked to the kibbutzim as an inspiration for their Hebrew. And certainly some of the Hebrew that we see in camps today is really a function of that early history and how that Hebrew was then passed down from generation to generation. In the 40s, you see this very interesting phenomenon where many different Jewish groups are experimenting with recipes for the preservation of the Jewish future. Some of them were more language-focused, and some of them were less language-focused. Camp Masad, which was a Hebrew-speaking camp, was uh, run by people who were convinced that 
the Jewish future in diaspora would be ensured by speaking a Jewish language, and particularly the Hebrew language. And so they created a Hebrew-intensive camp. There were other camps like Yavne, for example, like Camp Ramah, for example, that also very much reflected this idea. There were other camps that were less focused on Hebrew, that were more focused on religion, more focused on other aspects of Jewish culture. But certainly by the 60s and 70s, with the ethnic pride movements, the the back to the roots movements, there was a recognition that Hebrew was a way in which even camps that didn't necessarily see themselves as Zionist with a capital Z, a way in which they could promote uh, Jewish unity, Jewish peoplehood, um, and yes, a connection to Israel. Um, in a post-six-day war world, there was certainly a lot of excitement around Israel, and that was one way that uh, certainly at that time they could express their Jewishness um, and their pride in being Jewish by using these Hebrew words. Uh, since the 60s and 70s, we've seen different camps experimenting with more or less or different kinds of Hebrew to very much reflect their clientele, to very much reflect their ideology. That's kind of the world that we're talking about here. Language can be flexible. It can be used for communication. It can be used symbolically. Perhaps it's not surprising that to do Jewish at a camp or to figure out how to infuse ways of being Jewish, thinking about being Jewish, practicing Jewish life, you could do it best through language. The history came out of one particular ideology of what Hebrew meant in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, etc. That today, it might not have the same ideologies, but it's the same recourse, meaning camps are still looking to language to, to some degree or another to do really important Jewish work. In Jonathan's archival research, he found schedules from a reform summer camp in Wisconsin, which is now Asrui, uh, from 1959 and 1964. And the Hebrew words from 1959 were all Jewish life words. So things like bracha, magen david, mezuzah, mitzvah, hamotzi. Actually, they would have said mezuzah, not mezuzah. And then in 1964, the schedule that he found has Boker, Machane, Bivakasha, Tsrif, Madrich, the kinds of camp words that became common. And so I think it was in the early to mid-60s that at least that camp in particular and, and several other camps um, started incorporating more Hebrew along with their increasing orientation toward Israel. The reform movement is changing in the 60s uh, as well. And a lot of the rabbis who were coming of age uh, were folks who were coming from an Eastern European background as opposed to a German Jewish background or a Central European Jewish background. And they didn't necessarily have that classical reform upbringing. Many of them were growing up in immigrant households. And this corresponds with the increase in Jewish ritual in the reform movement and uh, the return of bar and bat mitzvah, uh, or I should say bar mitzvah in the reform movement and the invention of bat mitzvah at that time. So it's very difficult necessarily to separate it from other trends that were going on at that time. 
that for me is one of the reasons why it's so interesting, um, because we can see through this one particular item, a whole range of changes and transformations which are taking place in American Jewry over the course of the entire 20th century. Actually, the case of Azrui is kind of interesting. Um, in some ways, it's kind of surprising that it took place so late. The transformation of the reform movement, the emergence of, of Zionism within the mainstream of reform uh, was something that had been happening for decades at that point. You know, you talk about the the emergence of a, of a class of rabbis who were Eastern European in origin. You know, this is already taking place in the 20s and the 30s, right? But of course, you still have the last stand of the classical reform Jews in the you know, 40s and 50s. You know, and so ultimately, but what's what's taking place here is the transformation of American Jewish life and the way in which the Zionist movement, you know, later on the state of Israel comes to play a, a greater uh, importance in all of this. And I think it's really fascinating to see how these things track alongside each other. Yeah, I mean, the Chicago community in particular is interesting because in the case of that camp, you had a number of rabbis who were refugees from the Holocaust um, who then play a very big role in creating the culture of that camp in the 50s and the 60s. And they're uh, obviously dealing with a laity that isn't necessarily where they are in terms of their commitment to Zionism and, and what have you. And so it's very interesting, and this is obviously something that historians are dealing with a lot, where on paper you see, for example, that they're not supposed to talk about Zionism or they're not supposed to raise the Israeli flag. But um, in actuality, when you talk to people, they say, well, actually, we were singing uh, Zionist songs in the 1950s, even though you know the archive doesn't necessarily reflect that. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, are they remembering properly? Are they not remembering properly? And it turns out that they are remembering properly and that there was a little bit of a disconnect between the culture on the ground and the prescription for what was supposed to be happening there. And I think that that represents the kind of ferment that you're talking about, Jason, that's going on and the kind of push and pull in the 50s and the early 60s within the reform movement between these various factions. Going back to something that we discussed before is the struggle over language, right? You know, one of the things that's really striking, looking at, at your book and its argument and identifying a specific strand of, of Hebrew, as it were, or a specific use of Hebrew in, in the camping environment, is that I think we can talk about many different types of Hebrew. Anybody who thinks about this, you know, for any amount of time will realize that you know, biblical Hebrew, liturgical Hebrew, you know, modern Hebrew, you know, et cetera, these are all different languages, even though they share words, they share history, and so on and so forth. And so what does the emergence of camp Hebraized English tell us about the emergence and the use of Hebrew in a lot of different environments? And here I'm thinking especially about the use of Hebrew in the synagogue, right, where there is also this transformation which is taking place over the course of many hundreds of years, you know, in terms of thinking about how Hebrew is used, you know, in the synagogue. In the U.S., there's a whole struggle you know, over you know, one time trying to reduce the amount of Hebrew, right, which is being used to include, you know, English language sermons, you know, for instance, you know, later on to increase the amount of Hebrew, which is being used in the synagogue. And of course, this is different in different movements and different times and different places. But, you know, especially when you're thinking about the, the development of, of Jewish culture, what does the use of Hebrew at camp tell us about the use of Hebrew in other kinds of Jewish environments, you know, other kinds of Jewish cultural spheres? What immediately comes to mind is that, in fact, the emergence and the growth and the strength of Hebrew use at camp doesn't really seem to infiltrate other areas of 
Jewish learning and Jewish life. So you might hear at a synagogue, Sheket or Sheket Bavakasha or something like that. And obviously in an after-school religious uh, environment, you might hear Jewish life words. I'm sure, in fact, you do. But in the minds of many, what makes the language use at camp so special is, in fact, that it's just used at camp and that it is not used in these other settings. And that, to me, raises the question of not only why, why isn't there any sort of cross-pollination, but also why is it so important in some ways for camps to keep this distinct? And I think that there is some value and some perhaps cachet for a camp. Maybe the language in the Hebrew used at camp becomes part of a camp's brand that differentiates itself from other types of you know, uh, Jewish activities. And that has value, I think. I mean, I think that camps, for all the ideological and educational and amazing work they do, they are also businesses, meaning, and so they they want to, you know, um, have something that differentiates themselves from other camps that brings their campers back year after year and, and all of that. And I think that the ways that language is being used at camp is one of the ways in which camps might differentiate. Hebrew infusion is making Hebrew fun. The camp leadership infuses Hebrew throughout the camp setting as a way of making campers feel connected to Hebrew and making them feel like it's a fun part of their Jewish summer experience and that it's a part of who they are as a person. And one way that this happens is through fun games and skits, like there's a fork in Ma's leg Muzleg means fork, or there's a house I want to bite. House, bite. Ivri, 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 da bear, Ivri. Woo! So these kinds of fun jingles and, and skits and games, some people might criticize them and say, oh, these don't really teach words. And like, do they really need to know how to say fork in Hebrew? But the point of them is really not to foster proficiency. It's again, to foster that connection and also to make the campers feel like this is a fun part of their Jewish experience. There are a lot of different ways in which Hebrew is spoken and experienced at camp. Uh, For example, Hebrew liturgical songs. There is Hebrew on signs. There are all different ways in which Hebrew is infused within a camp environment. You have a whole generation of song leaders that grow up in the reform movement in the 60s and the 70s who are influenced by folk music. Debbie Friedman, of course, is the one who's best known, who in many ways are responsible for revolutionizing the liturgy within the reform movement and by extension, the conservative and even the orthodox movement as well. And people like Shlomo Karlbach, um, whose music is infused into some of the more, I'd say, orthodox or right-leaning camps. And you have uh, a similar uh, infusion of that music into the more traditional synagogue. So there's a profound influence of camp on the synagogue. And I think a part of that has to do with the fact that the counselors, these young people who hold power in camp. They're the rising generation who 
will, you know, t- five, 10, 15 years later become the moving force within the synagogue. And they bring the culture that they were steeped in with them. Um, and that's the idiom that they're comfortable with. And so they don't necessarily want their parents' Judaism. They want the Judaism that is meaningful to them. Um, and more often than not, that's the Judaism of camp. That's the Judaism that made them feel most alive, that made them feel most vital, um, that they want to replicate in their synagogues. Yeah, I just did a study of Hebrew use in part-time Jewish educational settings with my colleagues Netta Avineri and Nikki Greninger. And we did find that. We found that Hebrew infusion is an important part of how Hebrew is used in these settings, in addition to the main educational goal, which is fostering proficiency in synagogue skills, specifically for bar mitzvah performance, uh, bar and bar mitzvah. But in addition to that, you do have the roles at the religious school given Hebrew names like Mora or Mora or Madrichim for the um, teaching assistants. Even more recently than when we conducted our study, I have noticed a trend that is seeping out from one particular camp movement from the Habonim Dror North America movement to change the gender suffixes of Hebrew words. Um, so instead of saying madrichim, they say madrichimot, because that is a gender-inclusive plural that includes both masculine and feminine. And then they also have a gender-neutral singular, which is madrichol. And so the chol suffix you can say that for someone when you don't want to specify the gender or when they are a non-binary person. And I have noticed the emot suffix being used in, in part-time Jewish educational settings, specifically the word madrichimot. That's another interesting development where you see camp influencing the broader American Jewish communal sphere. So many interesting things to think about there the whole idea of the Hebrew infusion. You know, I think I noted, Jonathan, you used the, the tea-steeping language before as well. We can ask this question about what is the role and the function of Hebrew in American Jewish culture uh, as it has developed over the course of the decades. You, know, you talked about a number of different things, right? The inclusion of Hebrew terms, Hebrew words, day-to-day usage, whether we're talking about in camp, right, in the synagogue or elsewhere. You've talked about the transformation of Hebrew to meet the needs of people you know, and how they use it, the way that they think about language, gender, right, you know, and so on. Also about, like, what purpose does it serve? Is the purpose of Hebrew to give a certain flavor to the culture, to to prepare them for certain liturgical practices, right? You mentioned, like, bar bat mitzvah. How does this help us to understand the function of Hebrew in American Jewish culture, both within camp and outside of it? Hebrew is a way of fostering connections to our sacred texts, to our old new homeland, and to Jews around the world. And I think at camp, we do see those three orientations, but we also see a a specific orientation toward fostering a specific camp culture that is unique to Jewish camps in general and specific to individual camps. We talk about Hebrew as a flexible signifier, as a cultural practice that can have multiple social meanings, that 
sometimes people think about Hebrew as really about being connected to Israel. And you see that specifically in words like shlichim and kotel and amod dom, uh, which is a term that's used at some Bnei Akiva camps in their morning mifkad, mifkad boker, their gathering in the morning. And words like that, people might primarily associate with Israel. And then some words might be primarily associated with, for example, Mariv or Arvit or Musaf or Aliyah, words like that people would primarily associate with Jewish religious observance. But then some words would be primarily associated with the camp setting. So words like Hanichim, Srifim, the Marp, <laughs> right? And and when people use all of these words together, it gives them an, a, an association of Hebrew being multi-layered like that, that it's not just about Israel. It's not just about religion. It's not just about Jews around the world having this shared special language. It's all of the above. And I think it also underscores that when we talk about an American Jewish community or an American Jewish culture, we're really talking about American Jewish subcultures. We're really talking about different communities. And each community has its own lingo. And to some extent, uh, that's reflected in the Hebraized English that they use. Um, for some people, the language of social justice and tikkun olam has become almost a religion. For others, it's a more religious or liturgical kind of a Hebrew that reflects the Judaism that they're connected to. For others, their connection to Israel is central, and therefore you may see more Israeli kind of Hebrew reflected in the words that they will use. So I think that it's become the Hebrew that they speak is a diagnostic, which tells us a lot about who they feel connected to, what's important to them, how they express themselves Jewishly. It's one of many. I mean, obviously, it's not just the language, but I think that, um, as you were saying before, Jason, it is interesting in part because it tells us so much about these people. It becomes a Rorschach test, almost, that tells you so much more about um, who these people are and what they think are important. Well, another aspect of this is signifying Jewishness in general. And we see that with political bumper stickers and and college t-shirts that have the names of the candidate or the university in Hebrew letters. And in that case, if someone's wearing, let's say, a, um, a Biden shirt, then it, it shows that they support Biden, but also that they are Jewishly connected, right? But it's also sort of coded because if it just has the Hebrew letters, then people who don't read the Hebrew letters won't understand it. And even some people who do read the Hebrew letters might have trouble understanding it because they're not used to seeing words that are not Hebrew written in Hebrew letters. And I think you you see this at camp too. There's a little bit of an insider lingo going on there. And some people might be turned off from certain camps that have a lot of Hebrew because they don't feel comfortable with it, and especially the writing. And we saw this come up in the ideological debates at camps about how much Hebrew should we have. We talk about a tipping point. If you have too much Hebrew, then you might alienate some campers and some families and some potential staff members who might feel uncomfortable with so many Hebrew signs. On the other hand, if you don't have that Hebrew, then you're missing out on that opportunity to foster that extra little bit of 
Jewish connection in your camp? We have to think that Hebrew also is a way that you can display or you can perform or you can articulate your Jewishness, whatever that is. So, you know, you can choose to wear a certain kind of clothing. You can choose to have certain kind of food or not, right? But Hebrew is one of those ways and it'll continue to be ways that you can express the type of of Jew, if any, that you are, right? That it, it displays certain kinds of knowledge. It displays certain kinds of experiences, how you pronounce a word, whether it's uh, uh, Shabbat Shalom or Mazel Tov, Mazal Tov, those kinds of things. Each of those articulations is a display of a, of a type of knowledge, but all of them, it's not a matter of saying one is necessarily better or one is uh, more important than the other, but each of these, using Hebrew is a way of, of showing a type of belongingness and that the tent is, is hopefully big enough to encompass all of these all of these forms. And it's not only spoken Hebrew, uh, but obviously written Hebrew too, how you engage with written language as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck. I was just thinking, you know, Sarah and Sharon, as you were talking, I was thinking about the 2020 election and the Biden-Harris logo, but in Hebrew, right? You know, you saw people using Bet Hey, right? Is the acronym for Baruch Hashem, you know, but also for Biden-Harris. And I mean, it's just interesting to think about the ways in which Hebrew comes to permeate certain aspects of Jewish culture in a distinctly American way. The Biden-Harris, if it were written out, let's say, in Hebrew letters, so that's one level, right? So someone might be able to see that and might recognize even just the colors or something about it. Oh, that's Biden-Harris, right? There might be other people who read that and say, oh, you know, I can read it and I clearly see what that is, right? The other level is someone who recognizes the bet hey as some wordplay. All of those are doing Jewish, meaning it's just at different levels. And that's what makes it really cool. But it's also about how one orients him or herself to the language and, and sees it as a part of him or herself. To some extent, the bet hey reminds me a little bit of a kind of a rainbow flag sticker that you might see in somebody's car. and. For a certain community, they know exactly what that is and what it represents, um, and you feel a sense of community or a sense of political allegiance with that person, or you don't. Uh, I think with the bet hey, when you see that, either you know what that is or you just keep driving and you have no idea what that is, right? Um, but if you do know what it is, then suddenly there are all these coded assumptions that are in that sticker that you know, you've suddenly created a relationship with that person who you don't even know just by virtue of the fact that that person has a bet hay on their car. And we also see that in Camp Hebraized English. There's a great example of this in a J-Date commercial where in uh, the first scene, you have a guy and a girl in a restaurant and he mentions something about Maccabia and she says, what's that? And then he says, oh, I'm getting tired and leaves. And then you see him with another girl, this time with dark curly hair. He, and he says something about Maccabia and she says, you have Maccabia? We call it that too. Do you want to meet my parents? And so in this case, you have 
a word, makabia, that is common at many, many camps. In fact, 50% or so of the camps that we surveyed use that word. And it leads to connections outside of camp, that people have that insider language and they see other people who have that same language as also an insider. Yeah. I mean, I want to pick up on that. This goes back, I think, to something that Sharon said towards the beginning of our conversation, the way in which language helps to construct community. You know, a sense of peoplehood, I think, is what you were saying before, but it really is thinking about community. And this is both a sense of community within the camps and also a sense of Jewish community much more broadly. I think, you know, Sarah, the the anecdote that you were pointing to is this idea of people speaking in the same language, literally. And so it's part of this question of, about how it is that the construction of language is part of the construction of connection. It's speaking the same language, literally, right, using the same words, but it's also to take uh, Jeffrey Chandler's notion of post-vernacularity in which you're, you're not only uh, speaking in the language, but it's how you orient yourself to the language. And his notion specifically regarding Yiddish in his seminal work is saying that it's not necessarily about being able to speak in Yiddish, but being able to talk about Yiddish that is as important. And I think that there's something similar going on in Hebrew, and that's okay, at least from my perspective, that it's not necessarily being able to just say something in Hebrew or do something in Hebrew, which is, is sometimes being done, but it's also about how one orients him or herself to the language and, and sees it as a part of him or herself. Yeah, I actually, the post-vernacularity aspect was the second thing I was thinking about, so I'm glad you brought it up. When we look at Jeffrey Chandler's work on post-vernacularity, it's interesting to think about how the concept of post-vernacular can apply to different languages in different ways. Because there he's, he's looking at Yiddish, right? And he's trying to undermine the narrative of the death of Yiddish, right? to say that, that Yiddish lives on. Um, and of course, it does live on because Yiddish is still spoken by tens of thousands of people, right? But fundamentally, he's saying that even among the population of non-Yiddish speakers, they still have this connection with the language. But I think part of what you're talking about here about the use of Hebrew in camps and also otherwise um, is the way in which it also can be seen through this lens of the, the non-vernacular use, right, of the language. And I was wondering if you could maybe comment on what post-vernacularity is in the context of Hebrew, especially when we consider the fact that Hebrew is a spoken language for millions of people, but we see it being used perhaps in a post-vernacular or a non-vernacular way, you know, in these different contexts. Oh, well, that's why we didn't use the term post-vernacularity as the main theoretical construct in our book, because it implies a historical trajectory from vernacular to no longer vernacular. And that's not the case with Hebrew. But we, we certainly draw a lot from Jeffrey Chandler's theorizing about post-vernacularity. So much of what he talks about regarding Yiddish applies to how Hebrew is used and talked about in American and other diaspora Jewish communities. But importantly, I think it's, it is necessary to state that camps are using Hebrew, meaning at least within the camp context, not all camps, again, but that they are using forms of Hebrew, let's say. It's not exactly post-vernacular. Well, even in post-vernacular Yiddish use, Yiddish is used, right? One similarity is that 
the fact that Yiddish is used is sometimes more important than what's actually said in Yiddish. That's, that's one aspect of post-vernacularity. I'm not sure if that really applies in the case of Hebrew at camp, because the Hebrew words that are used at camp and the ways that Hebrew is incorporated into songs and, and prayers and fun activities, it's not just that Hebrew is used, it's, you know, that's not more important than what's actually said, but certainly some aspects of the importance of Hebrew do shine through in the camp setting. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of what I was thinking about there was just about how the example of Hebrew at camp, right, helps us to understand the various degrees of vernacularity that Hebrew plays uh, within American Jewish culture. I mean, I think about the synagogue, most of the Hebrew that's used in the synagogue is not vernacular either, right? You know, you, you're reading the liturgy or the Torah portion or whatever, that's not spoken Hebrew. And I think that part of what you're articulating here is the various ways in which Hebrew for a non-Hebrew speaking American Jewish population, because of course there are American Jews who do speak Hebrew, but how Hebrew plays, I don't want to use post-vernacular for a lot of the reasons that you guys avoided as well, but what I'm trying to say here is that, like, you know, you talked about uh, the use of the term Maccabiya, or, you know, we talked before about the, the Biden-Harris thing. You know, this, I mean, that's, that's a perfect example of you know, the kind of post-vernacular culture that, that Chandler talks about, the use of tchotchkes and imagery and, you know, so on and so forth. So, I mean, I just want to press you a bit further on thinking about what is the approach to language that you guys are drawing on and also the way in which you guys can, the, the way in which your work on Hebrew in camp can help to enrich our thinking about language and culture, you know, on, on a broader level. Yeah. So we, we talk in the book about Hebrew infusion, but also as a broader phenomenon of ethno-linguistic infusion. And this can apply in many settings, some post-vernacular, but others, uh, immigrant settings and religious settings, indigenous settings, uh, some of which are post-vernacular and others of which are not. And, and this also draws a lot from Netta Avineri's notion of metalinguistic community, the idea that people are convening around a language even if they don't have proficiency in that language. And so the notion of ethno-linguistic infusion talks about leaders of a community incorporating elements of the language into communal settings with the goal of fostering connection to the language and through the language to the group. And so Camp Hebraized English is one aspect of that. We also see that in songs and activities and um, jingles and all these other practices. This can be useful, especially for communities whose languages are endangered and where there isn't enough interest in the community in learning the language as a full language to incorporate elements of the language into the English or Spanish or French or whatever other setting they're living in, they can foster a sense of connection to the language so that it will still play an important role in the life of the community. Another word that we use in the book is translanguaging. And there was a lot of discussion among us especially because I'm not a linguist, about the word translanguaging versus the word code switching. And I like the term code switching because it's very evocative to me of what exactly is going on. You're using these two codes, this English code and this Hebrew code, um, and each of these things represents something. Each of these languages and these words embody 
a certain way of thinking about the world um, and certain assumptions that you have. And I like playing around with this idea of using these interchangeably or using a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. But I think that's kind of what's going on as well. Um, these different codes or these different registers of Hebrew and English and how they intersect with one another. Within the field of linguistics or applied linguistics, I mean, these debates are going on between these words. So uh, between words like code switching and translanguaging, translanguaging comes out of very particular discipline. It really is coming out of the work in bilingual education and really at its root is saying that individuals, people are going to use whatever linguistic resources are available in order to achieve their linguistic and social goals. And so when you see languages more, not just as individual languages, there's Hebrew and there's English and they're, they're separate. And sometimes we take from one and we put it in a sentence. That would be code switching. Translanguaging, very briefly, is more seeing it as a more fluid thing that we shouldn't necessarily differentiate these languages so much because in real life, the way people use languages is that they're constantly drawing from whatever is available, not even just necessarily from two codes, but from all sorts of things in order to meet their goals. And so if we think of Hebrew and English in that kind of framework, first of all, it breaks down the barriers between them. And second of all, it just shows that any American or anybody for that matter can utilize Hebrew in their linguistic practices, right? To meet whatever goals they want. And so it's not a matter of, I need to be a citizen of this nation. I need to be a fluent speaker of this language in order to be able to legitimately use it. If we just push that all aside, I think what translanguaging saying is that if it's out there, you can use it and use it in a way that makes sense and meaning for you. It's a really a philosophical way of thinking about language. I think it's helpful in our case because it's reducing or breaking down the barrier to thinking that American Jews, because Hebrew is not a language that most American Jews have a full fluency in or, or competency in, that it, it's not theirs, you know, or that they can't claim it in any way as a source of their identity. And I think what translanguaging offers us is a framework for thinking that, yes, you can use languages even if you are not biologically or uh, otherwise attached to the language. I believe you mentioned much earlier in our conversation the relationship between you know, Israeli counselors and staff members who come to the camps you know, and their surprise at the Hebrew that is used there you know, in, in various ways. But I think that you're making a point here on a broader level about the question of who gets to claim Hebrew, who gets to claim Hebrew as part of their Jewish culture. And part of the Zionist project, broadly speaking, you know, in terms of the, uh, the construction of Hebrew as a vernacular language was an attempt to try to claim Hebrew for the, the Zionist project, you know, taking it away from its liturgical use and, and repurposing it in new ways. Perhaps comment a bit broadly here about both in terms of the camp context, right? what the use of Hebrew at camp 
tells us about the Israel diaspora relationship and dynamic, but also much more broadly about how the use of Hebrew is part of this wider cultural set of movements with a lowercase m, not political or ideological or whatever, but, but the movement of culture and its dynamics. Hebrew was essential to the Zionist project of, you know, the rebirth of a nation, of a, of a people. What happens when a language is mobile, not contained to a particular geographic place, but becomes available uh, to others, you know, in other places? And we see this not only with Hebrew, obviously, but with every language around the world. You can't contain it. So I think that, uh, broadly speaking, it's an unanswered question about, you know, whether the Hebrew used by American Jews is ever going to be recognized by Israelis and whether even that's an important question. I want to just jump in just momentarily and just say that, that I think that that's part of the point here, right? You know, which is that looking at the use of Hebrew in these different places helps us to understand the fundamental instability of language. And this is fundamentally a good thing. Maybe some of the insecurity that some Israelis have when they listen to Americans speaking Hebraized English is the fear that as the world becomes more connected, that minority languages will be lost and there'll be a homogenization process. With that in mind, I think that they may feel like they have to safeguard the purity of the language, lest it be uh, swept away. That's just a hunch, but I think that, that that's a possibility. So the fact that Hebrew was re-vernacularized and is now the main language of a country has had a huge impact on how Hebrew is uh, understood and used throughout the rest of the world. And we see this in camp where of course, if it weren't for modern Hebrew, then there wouldn't be so much Hebrew at camp. It would probably just be limited to the Jewish life words that had been used in Jewish communities for several centuries. Not only that, but also there wouldn't be these debates about correctness of Hebrew at camp. And so when you have people at camp saying, oh, it's incorrect to say MARP or saying PNIC for personal Nikayon or Shabbatians for Shabbat options is incorrect because that combines words in different ways and it's not purely one language or the other. The people who are saying this are not necessarily the Israelis. Sometimes you get the Israeli shlichim at camp who kind of laugh at this language, but mostly they get it. They understand that this is the important language of camp. But often the people who are criticizing this hybrid language use are the Americans who are seeing their language use through the eyes of Israelis. And this is what we call sociolinguistic projection, where they're seeing the way they speak through others' eyes and being critical of it because of that. Yeah, and I think part of it is also, at least in some camps, the use of Camp Hebraized English reinforces in their mind the gap between the ideal and the real. So for a subset of the camps that we're talking about, certainly Ramah um, and some of these other camps, in an ideal world, they would still prefer to have all of their campers be proficient in Hebrew. They would still prefer to have a Hebrew-intensive camp environment. And when they hear 
people speaking Camp Hebraized English, I think it only reminds them of the fact that there's a gap between the um, ideal and the facts on the ground. When we think about Israelis at camp, people be coming from Israel to work at camp or perhaps in other sectors of the Jewish community, uh, we have to just take a step back and think, what does it mean for a person to embody a culture and then transmit that culture in another place? I mean, what shape does that take? What does that actually mean? Is it just the fact that this person can use the language and just hearing the language is enough? Is it what the person is saying in the language? We take it almost for granted, or it's a given that Israelis come to uh, American Jewish camps because it's been in practice now for 60 plus years about, right? But I'm not sure that we have fully theorized what that means or not only what the expectation is, but... Well, but I think for some people, the fact that you have Israeli emissaries, Shlichim, coming to camp is an embodiment of a cultural Zionism which sees Israel as a center and sees diaspora as periphery. And to some extent, they're right about that. And there are economic reasons why the shlichim are at the camp beyond the ideological reasons. The reality is that it's become much more difficult in recent years to get American staff. So turning to Israelis in order to make up for the fact that they're having a hard time recruiting Americans to fill these positions. But it also reinforces this idea that American Jews and American Jewish culture is somehow dependent on Israel for its survival and for its effervescence. And I think that that in itself is something that is complicated. It is certainly something that some people find problematic. It's contested. I don't think that we've, as a community, necessarily really gotten to the bottom of that dynamic. Therefore, I think that there's a lot of angst around it. Well, I want to thank you guys. I think this has been such a phenomenally interesting conversation you know, where we can look at the history of language you know, as a lens through which to see like a whole range of cultural, religious, historical, political issues. So I just want to thank you guys for bringing this interdisciplinary perspective, which really I think is, is the core of what we can do in Jewish studies in general. So just thank you guys so much. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It's been a, a very rich conversation. Thank you so much for reading the book so so deeply. Uh, thank you for your time and effort and, you know, in general for doing this. And thanks to you for listening into this conversation with Sharon Avni, Sarah Bunin Benor, and Jonathan Krasner. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters. <laughs>